recently, several very intelligent people made some headlines as they spoke of some of their fears for the future of humanity. Bill Gates was one of these. Stephen Hawking, the British uh, scientist, was one as well. He told the British Broadcasting Corporation, the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. The, the development of full artificial intelligence, if we could create robots who actually thought and planned full artificial intelligence, it could spell the end of the human race. Um, one of the things he said in his statement, he said that humans who are limited by slow biological evolution, this is his opinion, couldn't compete and would be superseded. In other words, these intelligent devices would be able to improve themselves as a, at a rate that we can't improve ourselves. Because in Hawkins' mind, we are here because of evolution, and evolution is a very slow and tedious process in which we would not improve nearly as fast as the artificial intelligent uh, devices would improve. It raises a very interesting set of questions in my mind, this question of artificial intelligence. If a, if a, if a device created by mankind then with its own intelligence creates crimes, who is responsible? You ever thought about that? I mean, we know that if you create an unintelligent device, such as a bomb or, um, you know, some sort of a, a destructive device that would, that would uh, ha cause harm, that the creator is responsible, right? In fact, if you even just create a faulty device that creates harm or, or harms someone, the creator is responsible, the builder, the maker, the manufacturer. But what about artificial intelligence? It, 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 uh, it raises a whole set of questions in our minds. I don't know the answers to all those questions, but it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the differences that I have with Stephen Hawking. Um, first of all, I'm probably not nearly as intelligent as he is. I'm probably, uh, I, I definitely am not recognized as a preeminent scientist. But on the other hand, I also have a belief in a faith system that is different than Hawking's. Now, one of the things that's been very interesting to me um, as, I've, as I've read some of his works is that, is that he has recently come on record, gone on record, as saying, you know, really it's not very probable that life as we know it, life, the, the amazing... Um, I would say miracle, but he would say chance that life happened. It's not probable that it would happen in our universe. The likelihood is so small of all the factors coming together. The Hawking uh, uh, re recently theorized that, in fact, we must be a part of not just a universe, but an infinite number of universes. How do you like that? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a de facto admission that evolution is very, very unlikely. We must have an unlimited number of universes in order for this explosion in a paint shop, a print shop, to actually have created a Webster's Dictionary. 
It's very, very unlikely, so there must be many, many more side by side happening, happening to happen at the same time. I believe, friends, instead that God, a creator God, an intelligent God, designed us, fashioned us, made us, and sustains us as human beings here on this planet. Now, I understand that there are many, even in the Christian world, who have a problem with the concept of creation. This summer, at the church gathering in San Antonio, the General Conference session, there was a slight amendment made to our fundamental belief number six. And I want us to be very clear here. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we believe the Bible is our creed. We want to follow God's Word. So our fundamental beliefs are simply things that we as a world family have agreed upon. We've come together and have said, yes, these are things that we see as abundantly clear in the Scriptures. Now, in 1980, 1980 um, when these were first written, the fundamental beliefs in, in the similar format as they have today, the church had number six. Um, it said, we believe in creation. We believe that God made us. That's what we believe. We believe that God made us. Now, there are some in our midst, and, and unfortunately, in any group of people, there are going to be some who are sort of pushing the edges of our belief or practice, right? Um, we're a family. We love them still. Um, at some point, we have to say, why are you part of this family? Because you don't really like the definition of our family. Um, if, you want to, if you want to change all of our beliefs and practices. But um, there are some, even in the Seventh-day Adventist persuasion, who have come to see that, that that fundamental belief six was actually written in a way that would allow them to believe a variety of things. They could believe, for example, that when it said God created the world in six days, they could say, well, you know, those could have been symbolic days, couldn't they have been? Those could have been, uh, you know, the Bible says a day is as a thousand years under the Lord. So it could have been ages six ages. It could, have been, it could have been millennia. It could have been, could have been a long time that God used a, an evolutionary process to create. After all, we weren't there, so how can we argue? Um, the point is, in 1980 when this was written, that was not what was intended. We believe that God created, and, and we'll look at some of the Bible's um, testimony of that here this morning. We believe He commanded. He spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Amen? We believe in what we call fiat creation, which does not require long ages of, of evolutionary processes. We believe that evolution happens, yes, uh, microevolution within species and so forth, but we don't believe that tadpoles become humans. We don't believe that the macroevolution takes place on this scale. And so there was within us, especially, unfortunately, among some of our, our, um, our educational institutions and others, there was a group of people who were pushing those edges. And so this summer it was voted that we would add a couple of words. We would, we would add in six literal days. Um, similar to the week we have today. We weren't there. We can't define everything, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day. How precise can God get? The nighttime and the daytime. That's what makes up a day. That still is what makes up a day, right? The nighttime and the daytime. That was the first day. Now, if he hadn't said that, maybe we would have some room to cavil over it, but we don't have that room. And so we made those changes and and um, the very the statement was made that we are trying to be very clear here 
that we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians believe in God creating the earth. Now, some have argued, they've said, you know, you really can't be an Adventist and believe in evolution, even theistic evolution, because, because if you're an Adventist and you believe in theistic evolution, what is the real import or meaning of the Seventh-day Sabbath, right? Because God, God, the creation story says, worked in creation, creating the world for six days, and he rested the seventh day, and he blessed it, and he made it holy. That's what Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2 says. The fourth commandment, when it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it goes right on and it says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains, of, uh, uh, and, and, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and, and, and made it holy. So here you have um, a, a very uh, intrinsic part of the Seventh-day Adventist faith, the Seventh-day Sabbath, it is founded upon the concept of, of, of creation. But I'm going to go one step further this morning. I'm going to make an argument that you may find to be controversial, but I think it's true that if even a, a theistic evolutionist is an oxymoron, what does theistic mean, by the way? It's, it's coming from God. It's God-performed, right? Theo is the, is the Latin root for God. And so theistic evolution, it says that God used evolution to bring us to where we are today. Now, there's those two terms, theistic and evolution, really are oxymoronic. You cannot combine them together and, have, and make any sense. In reality, I'm going to argue today that it is not possible to be intellectually honest and consistent and to be a Christian and an evolutionist. Now, please, don't go out and tell, uh, you know, all of your friends who happen to believe in evolution that they're not Christians. That's not my point. My point is for us to examine our own hearts, right? My point is for us to examine what is logical. And if, you, if, we're, if we're going to accept a belief structure, a philosoph philosophical structure, we should at least be honest and, and, and see that it's co consistent and coherent, right? And so these are the problems with theistic evolution, as I see it. I, I believe that God, in fact, is the one who created heaven and earth. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want to look at the problems with theistic evolution. What's the impact of theistic evolution on the, our various beliefs? This is not just the Seventh-day Sabbath. In fact, I'm not listing that. I'm assuming that as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we understand that creation, long-age creation, uh, long-age evolution would impact the meaning and the importance of the Sabbath. But this is what it also impacts. What about the character of God? This is to say, theistic evolution uses the argument that God employed whatever means that he wanted, and if he wanted to employ natural selection, he could. Now, I don't argue that God can do whatever he wants. He's God, right? I'm not God. I'm not going to argue with him. But I do have a problem with a theory that purports that God used an almost endless cycle of pain and suffering and death and dying to try to improve his creation. You understand what I'm saying? A God who would allow endless cycles, millennia, thousands of years, millions of years to go on with creatures who are deformed or not able to fully function, have, having somehow waiting for a, an accidental DNA change to, to take place so that they could be improved and adapt to the circumstances. And, and a God who used that method is not a loving God. Would you agree with me? So theistic evolution at first begun, begins with a frontal assault on the very character of God. It's, 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 it's saying that God allowed this to happen for 
these thousands of years, millions of years, endless death and suffering um, to, to, in order to improve the life or of his creation if, if he's a theistic creator uh, or evolutionary creator, theistic evolution. What about death? The theistic evolution purports to say that we came about through this cycle aforementioned of death and dying. Could you just uh, maybe unplug my projector uh, once and then replug it? I think that would probably help it resize, hopefully. Um, yeah, so th- this, this, this assumes that we began this, this cycle of death and dying, and somewhere along that process... Somewhere along that process, we got into an improved state that became humanity. In other words, humanity was predated, predated by this death and dying. Now, what does that say about the, the cause of death? Do you understand what I'm saying? So, the Bible teaches instead that the result of, of man's sin was, is death, right? Death came into the earth because of, of man's sin, Theistic evolution would say that man came into existence because of death pre-existing him. Do you understand the difference? So this does not just impact the Sabbath. It impacts the character of God. It impacts our understanding of why there is death. And even it impacts our understanding of sin itself. There's no understanding of a God who said you shouldn't do this and they did it and then death passed upon all men. Sin bringing death. The wages of sin is death. That understanding does not exist if you consistently have the understanding of theistic evolution in your mind. There's really no such thing as sin in this model. Um, And so really, we don't really need a savior um, because the idea of Jesus dying in your place in a substitutionary atonement is nonsensical. Why? Because death isn't the result of sin. There's no correlation between death and sin. So the idea that that God would die in my place for my sin does not make any sense under the theistic evolutionary model. Now you'll find this is why some Christians who believe in theistic evolution have seen this problem with the idea of a substitutionary atonement and they prefer a model that is known as the moral influence theory. I'm not going to go into detail with that today, but the moral influence theory of the atonement is to say that Jesus did not come to die in my place. Jesus came to show me what a moral life would be like. Um, They have to in order to be consistent. If they believe in theistic evolutionary, you cannot believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus. Jesus dying in my place for my sin. Do you understand why I'm arguing this morning that the idea of theistic evolution, it confronts the very principles of Christianity, not just of Adventism, but of Christianity as a whole. It is difficult, I would argue impossible, to be intellectually consistent and believe this theory of origins. Well, how about the the impact of of uh, creation, the impact of creation. Um, does God, does, does the character of God employ endless death and suffering if we have creation? Absolutely not. 
He, in fact, does not employ wages in uh, endless death and suffering. He created us, and He created us perfectly. He was a loving God. Is death the result of our sins? Yes, it is, in the understanding of of creation. Uh, sin is a rebellion, a separation from our Creator God, and that same Creator God came to die in my place. And the way we started, we started with this question about, about crea- uh, artificial intelligence. Does a creator of a machine that has artificial intelligence become responsible for its actions, its decisions? I think most of us would say yes, right? Most of us would say, yes, that that Creator is responsible. And the reality is that God who created us was fully willing to take responsibility for us. You understand what I'm saying? The reality is, and that's what we're going to study here this morning, the reality is that the God who created us said that man who He made up right, who He created perfect, has sought out His own ways, has, has, has turned towards evil, has become selfish and self-seeking, has rejected the very principles of, of God's government, which is a government of unselfish love. And God says, I could just walk away from Him, but instead I'm going to take responsibility. You know, that's one of the things I learned early on about leadership. I remember... I remember, I don't remember exactly what the situation was, but I remember one of the early times that I was, I was responsible for other people, and, um, and uh, some things went not as planned, and my intuition was, not being a born leader, I guess, or having good leadership skills, my intuition was, you know what, they didn't do it, they messed it up, and someone had to take me aside and say, you know what, now that you're not the Indian anymore, now that you're the chief, if they're your Indians, you're responsible. You're responsible. You take responsibility. It's your team. You take care of it. God said, I'm not going to allow someone else to deal with this. I'm responsible. I'm the creator. Now, someone could have said, well, Maybe one of the angels on the front row when when God was having that town hall meeting and describing what what the plan was to save mankind after their rebellion. One of the angels, I'm sure, must have said, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't, you can't go and, and die in their place. I'll go. I'll go. I mean, I'll go die in their place. I'll even if I'm gone forever, I'll die in their place just like they should be gone forever and die, and die. The wages of sin is death. I'll take the wages of sin. What's the problem with that? A God who would allow one created being to take the punishment of another created being would not be a just and fair God. It would reflect poorly upon the character of God, not that He's worried about the reflection, but because it's His character. He can't be different. It's the way He is. So he has to say, no, I'm the creator here. I take responsibility. I am going to go and redeem mankind. Do you understand that it's very important if we believe in a substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins, to forgive us for our sins, his death in my place, it's very important for us to understand that he is our creator God. 
that he's the one taking responsibility. There are some who would argue that Jesus is a created being, that he's just a, the first of the creation, that he was around before the angels. But how would that be any more fair if he was just one of those who God created? Now, I, I want to say something here real quickly. I understand that there are some Christians who have a problem with the concept of the triune God, of three in one. I also understand that the Christian church in the Middle Ages, it apostatized from the true faith of the Bible, the faith of God's Word. I understand that during the, what we sometimes call the Dark Ages, when the Bible was prohibited from Christians are reading them and they were just in the Latin languages that only the priests could understand and, and there were a lot of false teachings that came into the Christian church, there are a lot of good objections to the Christian faith of that era. Do you understand what I'm saying? I remember one time I was in Russia. I may have told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I was in Russia, and I had a group of young people who were atheists, and they were coming to my meetings every night, and every night they had written on a piece of paper, they had an objection to the Christian faith. And every night they would come to me with these objections, and they were like gotcha questions. You know, well, you do believe this? Uh, well, well, this is this way, and so how do you make of that? You know, and I would tell them. And every night it was almost, it was predictable. They would come with this question that says, Christianity teaches that this and this and this. And, um, and I would say, no, I don't believe that. Amen. What? Amen. And they, you just see their deflated looks, you know, because they thought they had me. This was an inconsistency in Christianity. I said, well, I don't believe that. That's what Christianity taught a thousand years ago. It was, some Christians still believe it today, but as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I don't believe that. Every night they came with a new one. And every night the answer was the same. I don't think there was one single challenge to what I believe. It was all challenging Christianity, a, a false Christianity in my view. I remember the very last day, this was their last chance. I was leaving the country soon. And they were, just, they were determined to find me. There's probably six or eight of them. And, and, and this time they didn't bring a, one question written on a piece of paper. They brought the whole book. They had been taking them out of a book of arguments against religion. And so here they were, they, 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 they were flipping to this page and they say, look, 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 look this. I said, well, I don't believe that. Oh, well, look, look, look. I remember one of them, they showed me a picture and they said, look, here's the, this statue in Rome, this was the god Jupiter under pagan Rome, under the emperors of Rome. That same statue you now worship as Peter. I said, no, I don't. I don't worship statues. Statues. I don't, I don't believe in that stuff. Oh, man, they were so discouraged trying to find a good reason to not believe, or to not believe in, in the Christian faith. Um, the fact is there are many false teachings. And one of the ideas that came in during the Middle Ages was an idea that God is, God is one being with three different heads type of an idea. Um, they sometimes called it a trinity. Um, that's not an understanding that Adventism agrees with. Um, now, there are some Adventists who now read um, uh, and, and believe that there's, there's, they don't believe in, in what we call the trinity, and I think that that's a problem. They don't understand the history here. As a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I believe that there is one God, there's one God, but that one God has chosen, has three persons who are a part of a Godhead that are one in purpose, one in character, one in 
what they do and what they accomplish, what they perform. They are together. And uh, Jesus was the manifestation of that, the clearest manifestation of that Godhead as he came to, uh, to earth in the form of a human. We're going to look at the Bible's though, uh, text, though, and we're going to look at that. And so I want us to just take a look at some, some verses here. Um, we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to notice a few passages here. This is going to be a short Bible study. And um, Genesis chapter 1, we start Genesis 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, you know it already, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now here in the English version, we have the word God, and God does not have number. It is sort of numberless, right? We would assume that this is one person, but in the Hebrew, the word here is Elohim, and Elohim is a plural word. If you have I-M on the word of a Hebrew, on a Hebrew word, the E-M on the word of Hebrew, it's, it's plural. Now, I don't believe the correct translation of this should be God's created the heavens and the earth, because there's one God. The Hebrew mind somehow understood this concept. But even though there was God, there was, and it was singular, it was also plural. Now, if we skip down to verse 26, we notice what they said when they came to the creation of man. Notice what, because even in the English, this becomes clear. Then God said, let, what does it say? Let us, is us plural or singular? It's plural. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That is to say that the Godhead, I believe the Godhead, came together and the Spirit was there because the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were all there and they said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so they made not just one person, they made two people, didn't they? And I personally am of the conviction that we need both men and women to make up the image of God. I believe that God made man in the beginning, male and female. I am personally very opposed to the current society's agenda of making our, our, all of us genderless. You know, they're not, even, they're not even calling them boys or girls clothes in the department store anymore. It's like... What's wrong with society? God made us male and female. He made us that way. Why? Because he made us in his image. Not that God's male or female, but he's more than one, isn't he? And he, God said, God said, let us make man in our image. We skip down to the next passage very quickly. John chapter 1 and verses 1 and 14. John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 and 14. I hope that these are familiar texts to many of you. As we look at them very quickly, we're looking at Jesus as the Creator God. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, sounds very similar to, John, to Genesis 1, 1, right? In the beginning, the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what does it say? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. It goes on in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John seems to be suggesting something here. John seems to be suggesting that in the beginning the Word, uh, whoever the Word is, was with God. In fact, um, 
it, 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 it existed in the beginning. Before anything else existed, the Word was there. In the beginning, the Word was there. The Word was with God, so the Word wasn't alone. I mean, God was there too, right? The Father God. And the Word was God, uh, meaning that God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, were both divine. All things were made through Him. John is suggesting that in this Godhead relationship, there was an active agent in creation. There was somebody who took the active roles. You know, when I was a kid, um, the people in town might have said, well, you know, Dr. Clark, I'm Chester III, so calling him Chester might be confusing in the story. I'll just call him Dr. Clark. Um, Dr. Clark sure has a nice garden. But guess who did most of the gardening, I have to say, you know. Um, I think it was... uh, us kids, I probably, probably that's an exaggeration. To us, it seemed that way. By the way, I'm glad my brother can be here with us today, uh, visiting from South Carolina. And, um, but here we were, we were kids, and we were doing the gardening. Um, my dad had a garden, and uh, this is probably a faulty illustration, but my dad had a garden. In some ways, we were the active agents in the Clark's garden, right? Um, my dad got some of the credit for it because he was the head of the family. Um, and, and, and in reality, my parents did a lot of work in the garden. We had, I think, about a half acre to an acre of garden every summer and, and had lots and lots of food to put up and can and freeze and all the rest. Um, but God here creates. God says, let us make man in our image. Who's going to do the actual speaking? Are all three of them, the Spirit, the Father, the Son, are they all going to speak in unison? Or is, is there someone, one of them, that's going to have the role of... Uh, of speaking. And in fact, the one who had the word, the role of speaking is the one who would be called the Word. Because the Bible says that all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 14, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Who's this word that John is talking about? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God said, I I want to send somebody to do two things. If you want to simplify it. Because of man's sin, because we, we disobeyed God and we went in rebellion against Him, God could have destroyed us, but He loved us. God could have sent an angel, but that would have been in out of harmony with his character of love, and it would have made no sense for somebody else to die for my sins. But the one who was responsible for me, the one who made me, it is just and is legal, it is, it is fair for him to be the one to take the punishment for what I have done. So God would send the Creator, the one who spoke the Word, the one who commanded and it stood fast, He would send Him to do two things, to be my substitute, number one, and number two, to show me the character of God. You see what's happening in this great controversy. You know the story. The serpent, who's the serpent anyway? It wasn't really a snake that deceived us. It was somebody working through the snake, right? The serpent. It was Lucifer. It was Satan, the fallen angel. And he is saying to, he is saying, God is not fair and God is not loving and God is not just and God's kingdom has all these problems and my kingdom is better, but Lucifer's world is a world of selfishness. I will ascend above the throne of God. I will, I will be worshipped in God's place. He's selfish. God is unselfish. 
But how can people understand that? Well, they can only understand that when God becomes human, God becomes flesh, dwells among us, and we behold the character of God through him. Now, how can Jesus reveal the character of God except that he is God? Do you understand? Because he is the creator, he can die in my place. Because he is God, he can show me that God loves me so much, he's willing to die unselfishly in my place. I want to be very humble here. I know Christianity has a lot of problems. Christianity has made a lot of mistakes. But I want to say that I believe that Christianity stands alone in world religions, in showing a, a God who saves us even though we've done nothing to deserve it. No good deeds, no good works, no penances, no sacraments. That's false Christianity. No pilgrimages. Nothing that we do can save ourselves. Our salvation comes because there's a God who unselfishly loves us just the way we are. No matter what I do, it won't make him love me more. He already loves me enough that he was willing to die in my place. Not a mercenary that sent somebody else. He himself said, I'm responsible. I'll die in your place for your sins. I love you with that kind of an unconditional love. But John is not the only one that says this. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, comes with a very similar message. The Bible agrees with itself when it's understood and studied correctly. The Bible agrees with itself. And Paul and John both have very similar themes. Um, I don't know which was written first. Maybe they read the other, but they were both inspired, so I take them both at face value. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Notice that He is the, the firstborn um, does not necessarily mean He was born before, but that word, um, protokaios, I believe is the, the, the Greek word. I, I Don't quote me on that. But um, that it, it's before all, it's over all. It even, even in our English translation here, it's... it's um, it's, it's pretty clear it's comparative to the rest of creation, right? And so it's not necessarily saying that he is a created being. It says, by him, for, and that helps to explain it, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created th through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. Now notice it goes on, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who, uh, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice that firstborn from the dead is used there too, even though some had already been resurrected. It's, he, is the, the, he is symbolically that sense, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So here we have the, the opportunity to see that... Um, that God, Jesus, the Creator God, is the Creator of all things. Let's skip down now to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Our last couple of verses here, this and, and one more passage I believe we're going to look at, and um, then we're going 
going to be finished. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself, not sending somebody else, by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, having become so much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So here Jesus is described as one who is the creator of all things. He made the worlds. He's the brightness of His glory and the express image of the Father's person who upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus' power. Not talking about the Father's power. Jesus' power. Why? Because He is not only the Son of God or the Word of God. He is God. Our last passage, Revelation chapter 4, brings us to the last days. We believe that we're living in a time when God's people are going to be separated from the world by worship. Notice with me here in Revelation chapter 4, we find the throne room of heaven. And here in the throne room, we find, we find a number of of things happening. Of course, there's the, the four creatures and the 24 elders, and they're singing a song. And this is in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 4, I mean, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, it's very interesting that these creatures are worshiping. Who should they worship? They should worship God. Why should they worship God? Because God is the creator, right? Because He is the one. In fact, the very purpose, the very, the very reason we worship is because He is not a created being. He is the creator. That is, the, that is his, the reason why He is worthy of our worship, because He is the creator. You are worthy for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We find that the passages we've already read here in John and Colossians and Hebrews tell us that the active agent in, 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 in uh, creation was Jesus. Now, is Jesus being worshipped here as well in this throne room? Or is just the Father being worshipped? We notice, we see in the next chapter, there's the story continues in the next chapter, verse 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders, stood a what? A lamb as though it had been slain. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Having seven heads and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, symbolically, which are the seven spirits which are sent out into the earth. That's the interpretation. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father. And when he had taken the scroll, the, 24 the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You, who are they singing to now? They're singing to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. For you, have, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Skip down to verse 12. They say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom 
and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, my friends, why do I love Jesus? I love Jesus because my Bible tells me that Jesus was the one who in concert with the Godhead created me. But this creation of God went astray. It was lost. Not only is Jesus my creator, he's also my redeemer. It's like the story of the little boy who built a little sailboat. You remember that story? He built a little sailboat. You know, you remember when you're a child and you build things that are dear, near and dear to your heart. They may, be, they may be so simple. I mean, I remember some of my childhood creations were so simple. They were so important to me. <laughs> my dad would take a block of wood, put a wedge on the front of it, drill a hole down, drill a hole through the end of it, and we would stick a balloon through the hole and down, and you blow up the balloon, stick it in the, in the bathtub, and that little boat goes all over the place. Yeah, little simple things when you're a child are so important. The little boy built a sailboat. He built it so lovingly. Then when he came time to sail it, it was a nice breezy day. He went to the lake, put it there where he thought it would just go right along the shore. But it wasn't long before the wind took it farther and farther and farther out until he couldn't even see it anymore. Broken hearted, he went home. Can you imagine being that little boy? Then one day he was walking past a craft shop. And the window of the craft shop is that boat that he had made so carefully. Lots of little sails and paint job. That's my boat. I want my boat. He went to talk to the owner of the store. He said, well, I, I bought that boat. It was found and I paid money for it. You can't just take it. How much is it? So he goes home and he gets his piggy bank. He opens his bank and he takes out the money, takes it back to the store and gives the money the, to, the boat, to the store owner and he takes his boat and he says, now I have my boat, you're mine. You're mine because I made you and you're mine because I bought you. And that's my Jesus. He made me. And even though I had a heart that went astray, he still loved me. Not because I did something to... Not because I did something to make him love me. No, Christianity says, while we were yet sin, in sins, sinners, he died for us. He bought me. You want to worship him one day around that throne? I don't have all the answers. I just can tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says the four beasts and 24 elders, they worship him because he's our creator. And because he's our redeemer. Father in heaven, today I thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. I thank you that you have revealed him in your word as the active agent in creation. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see in Christianity, in spite of all the false teachings that have come in through the ages, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of a God a God who doesn't have to be bought or convinced. 
A God whose very character is unselfishness. A God who wouldn't use pain and endless cycles of death and dying to create, but instead lovingly formed us out of the dust of the ground and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of a God who said, I'm not going to just send a surrogate. I'm not going to send a created being. I'm going to go myself as the originator, as the creator of life, the sustainer of life. I'm going to go and die in their place. Lord, help us to marvel at the foot of the cross that there would be one who would be willing to die in my place. Help us, I pray, as we look around the world we're in to see the evidences of a God who is a designer, a loving designer, who cares for us. And Lord, not only to to have cared for us and created us in the beginning, but thank you that you're also a God who wants to recreate in us a new heart. May that be our experience. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.